You're listening to the NC Food and Beverage Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Joko. Johnston County, North Carolina, affectionately known as Joko, is located just 30 minutes east of Raleigh. Great for a day trip or weekend excursion. Joko offers an emerging culinary and craft beverage scene rooted in rich agricultural heritage. Travel one of our unique food trails, visit a family farm, and relax at one of several chef-owned eateries. Joko is also soon to be home to two brand new food halls. Go to johnstoncountync.org for more info and come explore Joko for yourself. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. Before we get started, just a heads up that today's podcast with Chef Scott Crawford is going to be cut into two episodes, released today and next Thursday, while we are in Charleston for the wine and food event. We were super excited to have Scott in and couldn't stop chatting. We had such a great conversation that it ended up being about two hours long. So we look forward to get a great insight from a chef that really has done it all and can really relate to so many levels of this industry. Enjoy. Thank you for downloading, subscribing, and telling your friends about the North Carolina Food and Beverage Podcast. Coming to you from the kitchen studios in downtown Raleigh. This episode is sponsored in part by Spot On, tech that helps your business grow. Request a demo at spoton.com. And GigPro. Change the way you find staff with GigPro. And Joe Van Gogh Coffee, serving the community from seed to cup. And now, they can't cook and they don't clean, but they love to tell you how it's done. It's Max Trujillo and Matthew Weiss. And thank you for listening to the North Carolina Food and Beverage Podcast. I am your co-host, Max Trujillo. And I am your co-host, Matthew Weiss. And today we have the podcast's white whale. That's right. (laughs) Sitting in front of us in studio. The accolades, I could go on forever, but we'll cut it at five times. James Beard, Best Chef Southeast nominee, owner of Crawford & Son, Jolie and Crawford Cookshop, the one, the only chef Scott Crawford. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks it's good for to being be here. here. Yeah. It's about freaking time, man. <laughs> it's about freaking time. We've been wanting you on the show for a good while. We've kind of uh, danced around. We're like, hey, you should be on. And it's always been like, of course, man. Yeah, I'll be on. Yeah. And then life just kind of goes away, uh, gets away with us, and five years goes by. And uh, it, it it actually took, I think, my wife's passive-aggressive uh, nature at the end of a dining experience to say, Scott, you know you said you wanted to do the show. Do it now. It's Put it time. on the calendar. Uh, stop saying you will and just do it. Have you been doing this five years now? <laughs> we just celebrated. Uh, Congratulations. December 1st uh, of, of last year was five years. Isn't that nuts? Wow. Time does fly. It's crazy. Well, but there's so much more to talk about now, so... That is true. Yeah. That is true. But it's, it's perfect also, timing. Felicia is very persuasive, apparently. But also, <laughs> well, also, I think that uh, from the way I understand it, because Max was texting me, he's like, man, Chef Scott and I, we just got into it, had a great conversation. And I think maybe like that was, yeah, it was we, great. We, we need to, we need to get this uh, like recorded for uh, posterity. Yeah. It was a great conversation. Yeah. To paint the picture for all of those, um, obviously, Chef Scott Crawford, you know, uh, if you're in the Raleigh area, you know who he is. And he's, he obviously owns Crawford Cookshop, Crawford Cookshop in Clayton and Crawford & Son, your first official restaurant that you ha- had your name literally on it, but obviously, but had been at 
Herons at the Umstead for a long time. That's how I first got to know you and tons of mutual friends and coworkers and people in the industry that we've all come across. I even danced with the idea of being your GM at one time. There was a there was an idea, a thought that uh, of, of a, a particular restaurant, and time kind of moved on, and things didn't all come out to be exactly the way it was supposed to be. But not then, another Max dancing around a job story. Oh, I have. Please, I, I, I need to tell you something about that sometime today. Remind me. Let's just well, jump in. Well, right. we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. I, I mean, is it anything? Is it any more awkward than when Andrea Rusing was interviewing me for the? Uh, GM role at the Durham Hotel, and I had two women sitting behind her that were not wearing underwear, and they were opening their legs like for every for me only for me to see no. the whole time of the interview, and I was completely distracted. I was convinced that Chef Andrea like planted planted them. them to see if I could handle this under pressure, which I could not. I was completely distracted and was an idiot. And then when I asked her about it on this podcast, she went. I interviewed you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't top that at all. Yeah. There was also the Matt Kelly uh, asking about how do you clean the table. Yeah, Famous. I interviewed that was for a good Matt story. Kelly to be a GM at St. <laughs> James, and he at the very end, he said, I have one question for you. How would you bust this table? <laughs> and I gave like a nine-minute long answer. And I was so awkward. I was so, so uncomfortable. So then we asked him about it on this podcast, and... He's like, did I ask you that? And I'm like, yes. He's like, oh. I'm like, why? He's like, oh, I just wanted to see how you'd respond. And I'm like, and how? He's like, in depth. <laughs> it was long. It was it was a long answer. I'm like, yeah, that's usually how I, I take things. I actually enjoyed our interview and was in favor of hiring you. Finally, somebody that enjoyed their interview. With you so guys. you should know. I don't know that you ever knew that. It was my partner at the time who was not. Yeah. Which oh. is interesting because... He then hired me later. Later. After you were gone. Yeah. We could speak about that now. We don't have to, like, you know, we're talking about standard foods. I'm folks. just not sure if you knew that I was in favor of that because our conversation later was just very professional. Hey, you know, maybe it's not the right fit now, but maybe in the future, what you know, something <laughs> along those lines, which I meant. And you were like, do you mean that? And I was like, yeah, I do. You I know, mean, you I tell did me, enjoy our interview. You tell me, well, and our interview wasn't even an interview, like, on a day. I went to standard foods on multiple occasions like i think i met with you probably three or four times yeah as you were slowly building the place as you were slowly just kind of putting the kitchen together and you're showing me like the big you know this is where the bar is going to be and i you know even asked me like what do you think about this spot i'm like oh i, I might put this over here instead of that and you like, oh, okay and it's like we were talking about everything and i was really jazzed about it the way i remember it is and you tell me was it came down to financials, and you said to me, I want you to work here, but we don't have it in the budget to hire you for the amount of money that you want, and I am not going to offer you this job because I do not believe in the amount of money that is being offered to you. I don't want to be associated with that offer. It sounds it sounds about right. I, we had another uh, restaurant slated. Yeah. In the future that I thought you would be a good fit for, and I told you that, yeah. and that I thought that that budget little... would fit what you needed and what you deserve to get. Yeah. And uh, and so... So we, I said, why don't we revisit this when we get down the road a little bit? You didn't give me that particular offer, but your partner did, because I was like, just tell me. And you're like, I'm not, no, I'm not going to tell you. And I was like, kind of 
mess like kind of upset but then i realized what you meant because when i heard the offer it was embarrassingly low mm-hmm. and i said oh that's why he didn't want to tell me because he didn't want to offend me and then so i i didn't take it and then you worked there for a short while after it opened i mean standard foods opened to a great success it was packed yeah and it was the talk of the town it was nominated in its first month few months yeah for james beard award let's jump in there and say you know you were the chef and, and the beverage director for for as we talked about the umstead hotel in herons which is a five star five star diamond award winner and then you decided to to get out it was time to go do your own thing but it, i guess it was in partnership so i guess let's jump in there about why you decided to leave that place and what you were thinking sure well i had done before i came to north carolina the the umstead was my third forbes five star restaurant mm. and so I just didn't really feel like I had anything more to prove in luxury hotels, and I'd done them for a long time. And, and anyone who people who haven't worked in luxury hotels may not know this, but they're brutal. Yeah, like it's brutal. I mean, yeah. and I did it for fifteen solid years, and you know the stories you you just really wouldn't even believe. They're brutal. So you know, also I'm trying to have a family, and it, it just wasn't working anymore. And I decided if I'm not going to, you know, what what job is going to be better than the Umstead? Really, I mean, it's there's not going to be, I'm not going to find a job better yeah. than that. I need to go make my own company. And so I just made a lot of mistakes in how to structure a th- deal. that, yeah. right? And so I think that's the number one thing I would say about that experience is just how much I learned and how much I actually benefited from that. But it was also really, really difficult and heartbreaking and, you know, let a lot of people down and, you know, it sucked. Yeah. When you have a partnership that doesn't work, it's, it's really difficult to process and to, especially the local media. I mean, the way they handled it was just almost silly. It was like a high school newspaper. Oh yeah. I mean, it was like the most ridiculous shit I had ever experienced in my life. Up until that point, I had experienced, you know, professional journalism, and, and, and this that? was like this was the most. I mean, it was it was pretty ridiculous. So, I don't think that exists anymore, except on like some very. It, it's more the exception rather than the rule. I I had not experienced that. Yeah. Prior to me exiting Standard Foods, and I honestly tried to handle that as professionally as possible. Did not speak to the media other than to say it's not a good fit. I'm looking at another opportunity. That other opportunity was. Two key words: principal ownership. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that. Do you think that that was like? Were you pursued to leave? I'm sure you had multiple offers, but was like, was it just the timing of it, or did it did it sound like really what you wanted, or like looking retrospectively, do you think I really wanted to get out? This seemed like a good way, and it seemed right. Like, was there anything about? It, it, it was this simple. I, I have to get out. Mm. It's toxic. Mm-hmm. And I have no plan, and I'm still getting out. Mm. First time in my life, I didn't have a plan. I actually meant before you even went into the to the partnership when you were leaving Herons. Oh, was that was just I'm. You know, it was a five year project. I was at the end of my five years. I had achieved what I wanted to achieve. I mean, I came here to get Forbes five stars for Herons. Make they, no mistake, they were four. They when were four. You got there, and you left. 
when it was at five. Correct. You raised them. And correct. Yeah. And and as you said, Matt, too, like he had kind of done what he'd done and in this area there wasn't really anything else to do. Yeah. So so right. then but but leaving standard, uh <laughs> you didn't just you didn't just completely leave though. No, you, I you opened a restaurant across the street. I mean, that's where the space was. Right. <laughs> You know, the old Pie Bird location, yeah. which is where it currently is the Crawford & Son location, which, if you haven't been, I mean, it if arguably they, is one of the best restaurants in the state. Like, It's amazing. I appreciate it. I, I did not say, hey, let me go across the street and open a restaurant. Right. I looked around at spaces. In fact, it might have been Anthony from Oakwood Pizza Oakwood Box Pizza who Box. said... Hey, go look at that space down the street. And one day, you know, I just walked down the street and I met Lewis Cherry there. Funny story. Former guest of the show. Listen, and I saw Lewis out at dinner on Saturday night. I mean, someone took pictures of us at that moment and posted it. Wow. Looking at the, like. Yeah. And well, we walked are. in and said, we can do this. You know, this is great. This space is awesome. And these spaces are hard to find. Old buildings with charm, mm -hmm. second gen. I mean, you can't find that now. Yeah. So you know, I just want to touch on that for a second, and I'll get your take. I don't, I don't know if you're much of a football fan, but th this is like my understanding of the media today. Uh, I don't know if you heard Sean McVay. There was rumors last week that oh, he was going to leave the Rams and go to Amazon, and you know, I could just see somebody be being after the Super Bowl, like oh man, I f I'm fried. Like I, I, I don't know what to do next, you know. And then a reporter who wants to make their, you know, their salt, their living, their name out there, the first one to write Sean McVay thinking about leaving the Rams <laughs> and going into, you know. Yeah. But then, but then what happens then? It manifests it itself manifests. because. Amazon then sees that, and Amazon offers him a, a contract to be a, 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 a broadcaster on their network, right. you know, the new football. And it's just crazy. But, yeah. they, but like, they so want to be the first person to take a picture of you on this corner looking at the restaurant, or, or this person has a thought. Like, who else is going to say, after you just won the Super Bowl, what are you going to say? You're like, I'm, I'm fried. Like, I need a vacation. You <laughs> yeah. know? Oh, going that means Disneyland. he wants to leave the Rams. <laughs> I'm going to Disneyland. So, That's all you should say. Yeah. And, and, and just people run with that. And you're right. There's just no journalistic integrity where I feel like before before people would have like heard that and then they might have sat on that and see like okay do these dots line up does anybody else feel that way you know i don't know if you you don't have to comment on that but i've just been sitting on that for a while so well, thank you for allowing me to vent it was interesting you know it was a different experience with the media than i had experienced in the past so yeah. you know i learned i learned did that lead into and since we're on it the subject with the indie reporter very famously well famously in these parts there was an indie reporter um that came into your restaurant, and I'll leave it at that. She was not allowed to eat at your restaurant and let you explain the situation. Well, her. I didn't actually tell her she couldn't eat. I told her that we were choosing not to be reviewed. Yeah. Okay. She got up and left. Ah. So, Which, like, every person in the restaurant industry that, that heard that just, it was like... It was polarizing. It was like, uh, and I don't mean to diminish this uh, and, and to compare this to, like, this sounds really trite when I say this, but it was like... When the first female stood up against Harvey Weinstein mm. and said, I'm not going to let this happen. And then everyone else was like, wait, we can do that? And it's like, yeah, like I'm going to just say what how I feel about this and not let the industry dictate how it's supposed to be. When you, as a chef owner, just said to a reviewer, food reviewer, no, 
don't. You don't get to do this. Yeah. And it wasn't like uh, John Favreau in Chef where he freaked out and it was a YouTube right. thing and he just like <laughs> went nuts. Your, yours was just so calm and classy and you're just like, mm, I, I just choose to not have you do this. And then that in itself, not the review or the lack thereof, was the story, was that Chef Crawford kicks out indie week right. you know, reporter <laughs> she's not allowed to come in here anymore it's you know and like and that, that gets sensationalized but oh, you know there's a boldness to what you would you have do. thought i mean you would have thought i killed someone's baby <laughs> some some people i had a lot of support behind the scenes yeah not so much publicly sure i do have a small list of those who supported me publicly and i will never forget that mm. vivian howard's one of them oh, sure yeah. um but, you know, now, would I have handled that differently? Maybe. But uh, I felt strongly about something. I'm very protective of our industry. And I feel differently, I think, than most. I'm working hard to try to make this a better industry. I really am. I don't have all the answers. But um, I think sometimes the, the, the media has to take responsibility for how they've damaged our industry and the people that work in it. And I don't think that they do. I think they often write about us terrible, uh, rich owners who are just greedy and, you know, whatever. (laughs) And so I think uh, when someone is just going around blasting, covering our food scene in the the way that they were covering it. And by the way, I had a bigger issue with her editor than her. Mm. And that went on behind the scenes. And then later... They wanted to make nice, and so I invited them over for coffee, and we made nice. And that was a long, a couple of years later. Yeah. But uh, that's not the story. No one cares about that. Yeah, no one cares yeah. about that. But I will say that that editor is the one that was then later terminated mm. for the lack of integrity with the Bitamana story. Interesting. Mm. Remember that? Yeah, of course. of course. And I was calling him out for not having integrity. Right. So I, I still feel like, I think. I've been misunderstood a lot, and I'm okay with that. Um, but I, I had a point to make. I made it. They tried to cancel me, and we had five record nights in a row after that. Hmm. Yeah. So we didn't get slower. We yeah. got busier. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind that, of the Howard Stern effect. Type of thing. I, I, like... I didn't do it for that reason. I didn't do it for publicity. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that she was going to leave there and write this scathing thing. What was the oh. thought at the time? Like, was it you said about the or about her editor that lacked integrity, and was it also something like I just don't feel that this restaurant is fairly ready to be reviewed? Or what? what no, it? no, it was more about the way that they were at the time covering our food scene overall. Gotcha. And some of the speculation they had written about my split with Standard Foods—just purely speculation, just completely fabricated things—and yeah. you know made kind of statements about you know i had worked 18 months prior to standard foods opening oh it was uh, and, and, and i was well it was not up. not my fault sure. but i spent 18 months working with small farmers getting to know every single local purveyor in the area and farmer and hauling hogs around in my own vehicle and doing dinners and promoting the place and charity after charity and then you know this person writes that it was just all about Scott Crawford and it wasn't about any of those things. <laughs> and so is that is that fair? Yeah. I mean, is that fair in one sentence to just, you know, shit on somebody's year and a half of their life of work? Yeah. 
I don't think so. So, is 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 it fair for her to, you know, talk about someone's personal appearance in in reviewing? This kid was crying, thought he ruined the review. He came to me, you know. Right. I I was protective of your people, your my people, my industry, and so I spoke, and you know, yeah, it was polarizing. A lot of people didn't agree with it. A lot of people did. Well, Max, I want to take a pause for a second because. one, we need some coffee, and we'll get to that more later. And this actually coffee, Max is going to tell you more about, helps farmers, and it's a food project. But someone that helps our industry and uh, makes our restaurant life easier, and you especially as a restaurateur, is the people from Spot On, where they just have this amazing technology for that integrates all your your point of sale system, your inventory systems, your payrolls, they uh, they in essence make your life happier and make your employees' life happier because the owner and the manager will be happier because everything is easier. You can do it all from an app on your phone. It's integrated. It makes life easier. So if you want it, the easy life and the successful restaurant life, call Tanya Manibo from Spot On. She gives out her personal phone number. It's 858-213-7820. That's 858-213-7820. Or if you feel comfortable, more comfortable with an email, it's Tanya M. That's T-A-N-Y-A-M at spoton.com. And change the way you find staff. I'm talking about GigPro, folks. GigPro is a new partner into our podcast and a new presence into the food and beverage industry. They have 86 all the unnecessary BS to hiring in hospitality. Never look at another resume again. Have access to thousands of hospitality professionals immediately. You keep your core team focused on the jobs that you've hired them to do, which increases employee morale, but GigPro themselves has enabled thousands of businesses to return to 100% capacity. In layman's terms, GigPro is an app that is almost like a dating app for employers, employees to employers. They put out, you know, Chef Scott might say, oh man, my dishwasher's sick, he can't work tonight. I need a dishwasher ASAP. This might not be, I don't want to pull my best server off the floor to have him wash dishes. Can I get someone? And maybe Vivian Howard's got a restaurant and she's flush with dishwashers and she's like, "Uh, I have too many working tonight. So somebody that's sitting on the couch that doesn't, that isn't working that night can look on the gig pro app and see, Oh, Crawford and sons looking for a dishwasher tonight. He's going to pay this amount and they can apply for it. Then come on in and they can work that shift. Gig Pro takes uh, a little a little cut off the top, a little 18% from the restaurant who posts the job, and the employee gets insurance covered, and they get paid the next day. So it's really cool. You can bounce around, go to different places. Maybe you want to – it's almost like getting paid to stage. You check places out. You get in the kitchen. You look at it. Everyone's on the up and up. The insurances are done. And then maybe you want to work there more full time. Well – now you've just been introduced to your uh, your new employer, your new boss. How do I get this amazing service? Well, I would go to go.gigpro.com backslash NCFB, because if you do that, you get your first gig for free. Wee! <laughs> and oh. you would, 
talked about farmers. So I think today we have the organic food for farmers blend from Joe Van Gogh. That's right. And uh, well, Matt, you made the selection. You went through and brewed this coffee this morning, which, you know, that's pretty nice. Uh, Thank you. We are. Yeah, we're we're drinking some Joe Van Gogh coffee. This specific uh, brew that we have here is the Joe Van Gogh organic food for farmers blend. Kind of apropos of what we were talking about with uh, Standard Foods and looking at all the uh, farmers that we have here. It has flavor notes of milk, chocolate, lemon zest, a little sugar cane. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's a medium roast. Joe Van Gogh has partnered with Food for Farmers, a nonprofit that addresses food security and coffee communities to bring you a new cause for coffee, which creates real impact for the farmers and their families. Our roasters have carefully crafted complex flavors in this coffee through their artisanal roasting, bringing forward sweet, well-balanced flavors of milk chocolate, cane sugar, and hints of lemon zest. Grab a bag today and help support your coffee farming families. Go to jovango.com. Nice. All right. So, well, I was in the aftermath. I was in the wake of the Scott Crawford uh, wave that was Standard Foods because even though I did not get the job as the GM to work with Scott specifically, I, I hung around and I was still at Midtown Grill. And then when Scott left, I think for opening the opening amount of time, you might have been there about five, maybe five, six months, something like that, roughly. Yeah, about six months. Okay. Yeah. And so when he left, his team was still there uh, and and kept it open for a little while. And then ultimately, Standard just shut down completely. And then a few months went by. They actually tried one chef. It didn't kind of work out. Then they, then they ultimately found former guest of the uh, podcast, Eric Montagni, who connected to Vivian Howard because he was the chef at the boiler room in Kinston, came down. He is now currently the chef of the locals oyster bar, both in Durham Food Hall and Transfer Co. Great guy. Awesome dude. He became the new chef. And uh, I got the call to be the general manager. And I ended up being the general manager for five months. (laughs) See a pattern forming here. (laughs) You and I had a similar text conversation. I think you told me when I told you I got the job, you just said, good luck. Yeah. Uh, and then when I told you I was no longer working there, you're like, life's too short. Life's too short. That's Pretty exactly sure that's the said. text I sent you. That's exactly what you said. And you said exactly. <laughs> so, so without getting too gossipy, yeah. that's pre- that pretty much sums it up, right? That's it. Yeah. And uh, I really did try, Yeah. you know, to make that a smooth transition. I, I did not want Standard Foods to close. There were a lot of good people working there and... I didn't think that it would be necessary to close. Um, I I gave a 30-day notice and then left my people for 60 days. Right. Um, Yeah. I thought that was pretty pretty solid, pretty honorable. Well, and I wanted to talk about your people. That's something that is really important to me. And Matt makes the sports references. Um, A lot of people talk about, like, the the Bill Belichick tree and all the, the... not just the Tom Brady's, but like, ooh, the new Josh McDaniels that's now the new head coach of the the Las Vegas Raiders. I don't know how Let's I talk feel about, about the Bill that. Walsh tree, maybe, like something that's a little bit more lucrative, because <laughs> the Bill Belichick tree has not proven to be very uh, shiny. You're, you're correct in that or statement. Or uh, fruit. But anyhow, with that said, talking about people who are great leaders and then have people that work below them and then come up to be amazing chefs themselves. For one, when you left the Umstead, uh, you had Chef Stephen Devereaux Green, who was the who was essentially your number two at the time. Yes. And now he has just blossomed into becoming one of the most fantastic art, artistic and creative culinary voices in our state. And he's been leading the charge there at the Umstead since you've been gone. And, uh, and then even our mutual buddy, and I see him weekly now, John Childers, who works at U.S. Foods. Yeah. 
I stole him from the Umstead to be my chef at Midtown Grill. We worked together for a year, and then uh, I think I ruined him because he said, "I got to get out of this industry and become a sales rep." <laughs> so now, can I can I tell a quick story about please. John? Yes. So, John took the job at the. First of all, let's start with Stephen Green. So Stephen Green was part of getting the fifth star. Uh, I brought him in early on when I came on. He had been my sous chef in Charleston at the Woodlands. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and the Woodlands is a Relay and Chateau property. Relay and Chateau property, also a Forbes five-star property at the time. That was my actual first Forbes five-star award. I had only achieved five diamonds and four stars at uh, the Ritz-Carlton. Okay. And I left the Ritz-Carlton because four stars wasn't enough for me. You know, mm. what's next? Moved to Charleston. Uh, Stephen Green was there already at the time. I had met him, and we worked together there. He actually he actually introduced me to my wife. Oh, wow. Really? Yep. We went out one night. Mickey Baxt, who you may know in Charleston... Um, from Ben's friends. Yeah, yeah. Right. He just moved to Charleston and threw himself a party to introduce to meet everyone and I got an invitation. I didn't know him. <laughs> and my plus one, I wasn't dating anyone at the time, so I brought my sous chef, Stephen Green. And he forced me to go into this bar for a drink. I mean, that's a handsome plus one. A handsome uh, plus one. Yeah. And uh I didn't want to go into this bar. He forced me. He said, you got to go and you got to meet this girl. She's great. And it was my wife. Ended up marrying her. Wow. When I left there, I had no clue I was going to marry her, although she claims she knew then. Oh, really? She told everyone when I left that bar, I'm going to marry that guy. And she did. (laughs) Good job, Stephen. Wow. Stephen Green. So we have a long history. We've been friends for a very long time. He, He helped me a lot in turning that ship. So... When we took over the Umstead, the hotel was great. The food and beverage had a lot of problems, and that's typical in a hotel. Food and beverage is problematic. So Stephen came in and, and, and really was integral in making those changes and getting the fifth star. So it was a natural thing for him to take over. And he's really like, it's been a pleasure watching him find his food and, and really uh, become the chef that he is now. What's... Like when you say there there was a lot of problems, but they already had four stars, right? So right. they need to get one more. So like give us some tact some tactics you use or like what did specifically did did you change? Well, um we ch- we changed a lot. I mean, I, that's where I first met Lewis Cherry. That was the first work that we did. I mean, there were things uh design wise that needed to change the Yeah, there's standards that you have to achieve to even qualify, right? Well, yes, and, and a lot of those back then were still sort of secretive. Forbes is better about sharing those things now, but it was all secretive and we were guessing and but you know, you, you definitely have to have uh your design buttoned up and we, we had a kitchen that couldn't put out the food to all the outlets correctly. You know, a luxury hotel has 24-hour room service. We had a bar lounge serving casual food. And then we had, you know, this elevated cuisine and breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know. Yeah. And the kitchen just couldn't couldn't handle it. So we redesigned the kitchen completely. So a lot of logistics. A lot of logistics. And then, of course, just standards and, and training and training and training and training. Right. But 18 months after I started, we got it. That's pretty. That, that seems like a fast turnaround. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah, like, we, for a restaurant, we worked really hard at it. Yeah. So, 
I want to take this back actually because we talked a lot about present day or the recent history, but um, we talked about Gig Pro, and uh, if that was around back when you started in this business, you might have never gotten into the kitchen because, as the tale goes, uh, I guess one night the somebody in the kitchen didn't show up. You were good buddies with the kitchen guy. You were a front of the house guy. That's right. And they said, uh, Scott, we need you back here. Would yeah. you help us out? Yeah. And uh, so what did you do that night? I mean, I just did some knife work. I think I did just prep work. Yeah. But uh, in a way that showed an attention to detail that they, one, didn't expect and, and two, hadn't seen. I mean, it was a seafood shack. Okay. I mean, I was friends with them because I sold them all weed, right? <laughs> okay. All of there these, we go. <laughs> all of these cooks were, you know, more like me anyway. I didn't belong on the in the front of house. I, I, that's just where I happened to start. I started as a bus boy. Yeah. Right. Then I, that was my first job. In and the, this was up near Pittsburgh? No, no, was this was in Florida. Okay. Yeah. Because you grew up in the Pittsburgh area, right? I did. I, you know, my jobs in Pennsylvania were, you know, working on my grandfather's sawmill, working in a machine shop, you know, things like that. Okay. And I so worked I, on a farm. Okay. And how'd you get down to Florida then? Um, well, I got kicked out of my house when I was 17. Okay. And uh, I finished high school living in my friend's basement. And I had two options. We were going to, my friend and I we were going to get the hell out of there. You know, we, mm. my brother and I had been in and out of trouble, very, very troubled kids, right? And so arrests and he was incarcerated and just, it was time for a fresh start. There was no good that we could do there anymore, right? We needed to go. You needed a fresh start. Yeah. So... No idea what we we're going to do. It was either Texas or uh, Florida. Florida. Um, my mom lived in Florida. hadn't seen her in years. So that was like, okay, well, let's go reconnect and we'll see how we like Florida. And uh, that was it. Never went back. So you went to move, move went with to, your... Yeah, you, went, went down. Um, she kind of helped us get on our feet. We we're just kids. Uh, finally got an apartment on the beach mm -hmm. in St. Augustine. Okay. Nice. And, uh, you know, started to learn how to surf and relax and decided that the, 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 the best industry to support that lifestyle that I wanted was restaurants. Yeah. restaurants. Work well, at night, surf at the night. Yeah, exactly. And that also, I mean, kind of clicking forward a little bit, too, and I, I'm a product of this, too, is it, it seems like sometimes when the, uh, the family life isn't necessarily the most nurturing, the hospitality industry is an open armed type of we'll take all your orphans yep. type of place absolutely you know for sometimes it's negative but a lot of times it's really positive it's like hey we'll take your misfits we'll take your cast outs you need some some people to watch your back you need some leadership you need some discipline you need some good times yep it's kind of you get all that you do get all that and uh i'll and tell you what you those... got a lot of that <laughs> Well, what those cooks said to me that night after the shift was, you belong with us. Hmm. I had never heard those words in my life. Yeah. You, you belong. I didn't know that I belonged anywhere. How did you know the knife skills at that point? Like, were they just natural or you like grew up with it or you no, just, just watching? It's just what I did. Yeah. I wanted a sharp knife and I wanted my cuts to be clean. I had worked in a machine shop doing very meticulous work, but I think it's just my nature. It's just, you know. Yeah. And so, and so then, yeah, I guess all that led to you being smitten with the industry at that point. Yeah. I mean, it was, I never looked back, you know, it was like, okay, now I want to learn how to cook. But so you got into it and, uh, and, and for those that know you, 
you had good times. You yeah. partied a little bit. Yeah. You were selling weed to these guys. No, I partied a lot. Yeah. You know, not uh, not a little bit. What was uh what was the drug of choice, if you don't mind me asking, back in the day? Cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I had to keep going, you know, keep going. <laughs> yeah. So um but that 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 was the that was the one that, that took me down. But that party ended about I think Matt and I were talking about 16 years ago. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, 17 years ago. 17 mm-hmm. years ago. And uh, what city were you in when that uh, when that party came to the end? Uh, I had just moved to Charleston. Okay, because that's a party town too, especially for the restaurant industry. It is. Uh, but I had taken on a big job. I had, you know, between the time when I, <clears throat> you know, I, I started drinking and using drugs at, at 11 years old. That's when I smoked my first joint. Wow. 11. I had an older brother, and that's why. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until, you know, I had a friend visit me from Pennsylvania that I grew up, a childhood friend. He visited me here in North Carolina, and we were having this incredible conversation. He looked at me, and he said, you know, I was traumatized from growing up with you and mm. your brother. Mm. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized the trauma that I had experienced <laughs> Growing up with, with my brother. When you're in it. Actually, I mean, funny, he was hardcore. Like, he was nuts. My brother's a pretty, like, s- sober. I mean, he like, he drinks alcohol, but not in excess. But because of him, I never did drugs at all. The, the entire time I was, until I was 18, that's when I first smoked my first joint. But it was like, oh, no one can see. And <laughs> my brother's not around. And I'm an adult. I'll do whatever I want, bro. But, like, I had the exact opposite thing. It was like, I didn't want to let him down. But meanwhile, you've got your brother going, hey, Here. hold it in your lungs, bro. Yeah. Don't be a puss. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that first joint, you know, the the whatever was left, the roach, I threw it on the ground and he he punched me in the head <laughs> and told me to pick it up and eat it. Right. <laughs> You're supposed to eat it. I didn't know. How, 11 years old. How much older is he? He's two years older. Yeah. And so he's 13. Yeah. It wasn't like he, he was. A, look, yeah. he, he's stealing cars by then. Oh, my gosh. When wow. I tell you that we were bad, it it was bad. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing because just cut to, and, and I want to get back to this, but you're op- you're slated to open up a new restaurant called Crawford Brothers. That's right. And that's your big bro? That's I right. I mean, that's named after your big bro? That's so right. So what's your big, what's... Will it? he be selling cocaine there? <laughs> no. So you, you should know that my brother has been uh, sober for over 30 years, and he actually was the one who helped me make the decision to get sober. Okay. And, and so he he's dragged a, it down and then pulled you up. He's been a huge inspiration in my life. That's um, awesome. Even since I was a kid. And listen, growing up with a, someone like that, I mean, he was a badass. Yeah. Good-looking guy. I got to date older girls. I got to do things that other kids my age didn't get to do, right? Drag racing cars and, you know running the streets and people thought I was cool because I was his brother. Also, people feared me because I was his brother. And so there was a lot of like really cool stuff that came along with being his brother, but it was also traumatizing because no one knew what he was going to do next. And it was terrifying. Yeah. He was a terrifying individual. Does he struggle with mental illness? Um, Just basically addiction Mm. and uh, anger issues. Mm. So we, we, we were angry kids. And so what does he do now? Is he going to be actually involved, or it's a name? No, no. It's just the name that I thought would be, um, I, I don't know, sort of a tribute to uh, our, our brotherhood and, okay. and how much he's inspired me. And, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here. I certainly wouldn't be as successful as I've been 
without him. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't have probably gotten sober, and so I, w- I would have been dead. Wow. I was pretty close to being dead at the, at the end of my run, at the end of my party. Yeah. I, I wasn't in control at all. That's always the amazing thing to me is that you, even this uh, drug addiction, drug abuse, the, the traumatic childhood, we're still building uh, steps to success in what is your career now. Like you said, you had come to Charleston, I'm assuming, for a, for a restaurant gig, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So somehow you were still being succeeding. Able to, yeah, yeah. Succeeding. I, I mean, but tearing myself down, right? I, you know, I'd been hospitalized several times. And the last time I was nearly dead. Um, I was in Miami one night speedballing mm. with a friend in a Ritz Carlton. And the next day I was in ICU for a blood sugar that was almost a thousand. I had type 1 diabetes and didn't even know it. Ugh. And they were looking at me like they had seen a ghost, these nurses. And I even asked them, why are you looking at me like that? And they said, we've never seen anyone alive with a blood sugar of 1,000, only Jesus. dead people. Yeah, We don't understand how you walked in here. And I don't understand either. I, I drove there. I don't even remember. The drugs probably actually kept you going. Maybe. I mean, But, you know, point, I mean, it just tells you how yeah. close I came. And, and it was a year. It still took me a year to get sober after that. What was what was the like jumping off point of the break, you know the straw that broke the camel's back? My brother so called me and said, "You're gonna die." I just know it. Yeah. And so you got to do something, or, yeah. or you're gonna die. And I'm gonna get that call. I'm just waiting for it every time the phone rings. It sounds to me that that he might. He might have been the only person that could have said that. Reached you, right? That you would have listened to. He was absolutely one hundred percent right. It was, and I had heard that before from people. God, you're gonna die. You're crazy. You know all yeah. these things. Whatever. Right. That moment when he said that, I said, "You're right. You're absolutely right." And I believed him. I knew he was right. And I was like, "What do I do? I don't even know what to do." And he's like, "You just gotta walk into a meeting mm-hmm. and keep going every day, three times a day." You know, I couldn't quit my job. I couldn't go to rehab. You know, I mean, I was, it was, yeah. no one was sober back then in the industry either. So it, it was awkward to say the least. You and know, now we have all these conversations, which are great. There were none of those. Yeah. When you went to a food and wine festival, everyone was wasted. Yeah. Everyone. We're going to Charleston Food and Wine in a couple of days. Matt. Wine and food. Oh, yeah. Actually, well, now I'll be there, food. too. Oh, nice. Right. It's different now, though. I will say that, you will know. you drive us around, Scott? Yeah, I will. You'll be wasted. I <laughs> no, mean, they might good. as well be, be like, I've been to these things where you can't even find food. It's just alcohol. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? It's a it's it's a party, and it's almost too much of a party. It's like uh, my old boss used to say, and many bosses say this, when you go on one of those company trips, they're like, remember, no one ever gets promoted at these jobs. Right. But they sure as hell can get fired. Right. You know? <laughs> Listen, when I was with the Ritz-Carlton, they had someone that they sent with me everywhere I went. A handler. Like a handler. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Why don't they do this for football players? Like, Henry Ruggs could have maybe not killed somebody in a DWI accident because he This guy kept me out of jail many, many times. Kept I me bet. from getting fired. And it was just, that's kind of how they handled it. Yeah. Wow. You know? Just send... But in a way, it enabled it, though. It did. Yeah, because you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't have to I'm foolproof. I'm yet. a rock star. Yeah. yeah. And he'll make sure I don't go to jail. And if I do, he'll, he'll bail, bail me out. out. Yeah. I can still make the event. 
So you were going to meetings, but I want to touch upon Matt said the words Ben's friends at some point, and you have a close relationship or a connection there. Uh, for those that don't understand, maybe in your words, what, what is Ben's friends? So uh, my two dear friends, Steve Palmer and Mickey Baxt. Um, Steve Palmer, former guest of the show. He's been on. Oh, has he? Yeah, great, yeah. Dude. yeah. great guy. Um, so those were the only two sober guys I could find in the industry back in the day. Yeah. Mickey became my sponsor hmm. and has been for 17 years, even though he says... I'm bullheaded, and he doesn't do anything. I do it all, but he, he's he's helped me tremendously, and so has Steve. Um, I actually went to help Steve do an opening. Crawford & Son was under construction. That's, yeah. that's what I remember. And so I had some time, and he had an opening happening in... Uh, he didn't have enough people for the opening. He needed some manager. He put together a task force, and I was one of those. We all got together and we realized that we were all sober guys and on this task force. It was pretty cool, just by accident. Bunch of chefs. Um, and Ben Murray was one of those guys. And Ben, um, we did this opening. It was, it was really cool. It was fun, successful. Ben had been called down by Steve from Atlanta. And then we all left. I came back home and got to work with Lewis, finishing up Crawford & Son. I got this call from Steve uh, maybe a week later, and he said, you know, Ben had taken his own life. He had relapsed sometime during that opening. Yeah. We did not recognize it. And, you know, the question, that was the big question, how can this happen? You know, how can we all be there around him, understanding what, what that means to relapse? And he didn't ask for help because he was ashamed or, you know, he didn't want to share that. Or I don't know when it happened. Again, I didn't recognize it. Um, if I had, I would have taken some sort of action. But uh, Steve at that point was like, you know, we have to do something. We have to do something. And we had talked for a long time about what we could do to help our industry and this, you know, disease that plagues our industry. And uh, so he said, you know, I'm going to honor Ben and, and we're going to do something. And Steve and Mickey started the first Ben's Friends meeting in Charleston. Mm -hmm. And I went down and had attended a meeting there and was inspired, came back to Raleigh and founded Ben's Friends Raleigh. And that was the, I think that was the first one besides Charleston. So it specifically is it's a, geared it, to the food and beverage that's industry. That's correct. It, it is a support group. Um, it's and a nonprofit. It's a support group for uh, people in the industry who who struggle with alcoholism or addiction, and it doesn't necessarily—it's not linked to religion so much as it's just a correct. Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, not linked to any group other than just the fraternity, sorority, whatever the the community That's of right. the food and beverage industry. That's right. Yeah, because I, I, you know, look, <laughs> I have my own issues with uh, my relationship with food and or with with alcohol and all that, and it's like you go through these ups and downs. You get to these moments, and you're just like, "What? Where am I? What's going on?" Yeah. And uh, we kidded around. I mean, Matt and I, we talked about dry January. He doesn't participate in it, mainly just because he's selfish and he sells wine. And he doesn't, he doesn't want people to stop buying Wrong. alcohol. Sure. Talk and his about birthday <laughs> is the, in the month of January. So he's like, how dare people not party with me in my birthday? Uh, but I elected to do it. Uh, I'd like to say I went the entire month. But like 23, 23 days in, I was like, oh, fuck it. 
I'm just having a beer tonight. <laughs> and I did. And, uh, but then I finished the rest of the month. I said, all right. And I finished it, but I had like basically one night. And that stupid night, I didn't just drink. I drank my face off. And then I felt horrible the next day. I actually thought I had COVID because I felt so bad. A hangover so bad you thought you had COVID. Yeah. Like for two <laughs> days, it was so bad. And I kept taking tests like left and right. I'm like, nope. I was just hungover, and that well, was it. let me be clear, because a lot of people think when you get sober that you're sort of anti-alcohol, and I am simply not. I sell it, and I like selling it because it can be very profitable for our businesses, but I like selling it to people who can handle it, right? Yeah. yeah. And there's a percentage of us who cannot. Yeah. And so, you know, one drink for me, even, a, you know, I tried all the rules. Mm. I'm going to just drink wine from now on. Right. I mean, that would last like one day. One glass of wine with dinner would turn into three days in a hotel room with cocaine and bottles of liquor. I mean, literally. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Sometimes that's why I don't feel like I'm like addicted to the same level where it's like, okay, I just kind of got to that point where I went. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And then I just stopped. And I've been pretty moderate. But again, you probably are like, yeah, that sounds like a lot of the people well, I've talked to in the past. But like, also, like, it's just like, all right, I need to just chill out. And now I just chill out. And now sure, it's like I'll sure. have a beer here and there. And it, and, and I think like the um, the want for being drunk has kind of like left my system. Like, I don't really go like, I want to be hammered today. It's more just like... I just want a beer. I just want to chill at the end of the night. Sure. And I feel like better about that now, but it's not like I've had those. Matt and I both, you, you've you had better re- uh, restriction on when you and I were out at like, when we went to like Wilkes County or so on our things and you and I are just alone in a hotel room. <laughs> we're like drinking bottles of wine. You're like, no more wine. We're done for the night. I'm like, just open <laughs> another one. You're like, no, we got a big day tomorrow. I'm like, no, all right. Yeah. See, I'm not so selfish. I'm looking out for your. Yeah. You made me sound very selfish, man. It was probably you like know. a calorie count thing. You're like, no, no, no. I don't want to cheat. This yeah. is all oh, the man, wrong I, I will say the thing I miss most <laughs> is wine. Yeah. Well, and because uh, I heard you in an interview say recently that you still will taste wine. I do. And spit. Yeah. Yeah. I and, got to that point. Mickey won't like to hear that. Okay. But I, I've. He's not I, listening. I have no issues with that at this point. It took me a long time to feel like I could do that. Yeah, because I, I just. We've talked about this before, like on the show with um, I, uh, Crawford was his name, Levoy. Yeah, uh, who, Crawford Levoy. Yeah, 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 Crawford Levoy. Uh, who? Good friend of mine. Okay, so yeah. he's sober, but he would buy wine for back in the day um, for, for Piedmont. Piedmont. Yeah, oh, connected and to John May. Connected to John May. Yeah. We'll have to get into well. it in a moment. Yeah, um, but and I just I just find that so fascinating. I mean, it's like a chef not being able to taste food. You know, it's like how can and I know it's. I'm not saying it's not possible, especially if you have the background and you have the memory. But it makes it difficult to have to think if you don't really know your product. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the things that was difficult when I first got sober was, um, especially at the Woodlands, we did a lot of wine dinners. You know, we were constantly pairing wine with food and exploring that. I mean, geeking out on that, right? Yeah. Like really getting into that. And so, I had to go to my. Uh, you know, my sommelier and say, you know, I can't do this anymore. We go down in the wine cellar and those wine tastings turn into it's three o'clock in the morning and we're still in the wine cellar, you know. Oh, we uh, don't know anything about that. You know? <laughs> Matt and I ran that's a restaurant a, together and yeah. we'd be there till sometimes that's the, the sun would come up. Yeah. of our relationship. Yeah, yeah. that's how we kind of knew each well, other. Well, and those were fun times, but I had to go to him and say, you know, I can't do that anymore. You're going to have to be my palate yeah. and, I, and I'm going to have to work through you, which is a great thing, by the way, um, that we could talk about 
is working through other people, you know, and not actually using my own palate. That, that's really a scary thing. Well, yeah. let's bring up John May, because John May used to work, and, and it's an interesting thing. I'm talking about TV's John May, who uh, who famously worked with uh, Vivian Howard, and then became the head chef at Piedmont, and we did our first public event, Pork and Rum, uh, which actually is on this mug yeah. right here. Look at this, Pork and Rum. That was a little event that we did with the podcast. Memorialized. It was the first, uh, uh, public facing we did where uh, John put all the food together uh, fantastic chef he was running the whole thing with Crawford uh, Lavoie and then eventually when Crawford left and John took over the whole place he was kind of coming apart at the seams he's a close buddy of ours and at some point he's just like uh, I'm gonna stop being a chef like I gotta get out of this business yeah. it's crushing me and like you just see his soul starting to like wither away and become a shell of himself and and John, I'm sorry if I'm talking about you while you're not here. I love you, man. You're a great guy, and this is all just support. Um, he's now uh, a wine rep, and I buy wine from him in, on top of buying wine from Matt over here. But, uh, but he got out of the business and started to go to the front of the house and it ended up being your general manager for, for a time at Crawford & Son, yeah. where he also was buying the wine and kind of doing that front part. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to him, and it was like, you, Scott Crawford, were like a safe haven for someone like uh, John. It's like you provided a healthy work environment for him and you gave him enough structure. This is just from what I remember him talking about to where like he didn't feel like he was being abused. Like he wasn't just being told, I don't give a shit work. You got to go. Like if we're open, you're there. <laughs> and, yeah. Like that's it. And uh, and and you kind of helped him like maybe not. Uh, hate the industry uh, as much as I think he was slowly getting to that point. And again, John, I don't mean to speak for you. And if I'm wrong, you come on here, come on next week, and you tell your story. Uh, but um, actually, we should get John May back on this podcast and see what he's doing. But but anyhow, uh, that that whole thing, you know, like what was that like? You you took a guy that n- knew the kitchen really well, and really wasn't a front of the house guy at all, and then you just brought him in there and kind of had him start running the front. How was that relationship? Sure, why not? You know, we'll try new things. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's a, a great compliment that he said that, That um, because we do try very hard. And it's not easy because our work is demanding. Yeah. And so there's a lot, you know, we walk a very fine line in trying to make sure that we're doing the best work that we can possibly do, but creating a, a healthy environment. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard stuff. It's It's really hard stuff. And so we work at it. I don't think we're perfect, but we certainly work at it. So that's a great compliment. Um, I don't want people to hate the industry. I love the industry still. I, this is part of our conversation. Yeah. I still love this industry. And I mean, when you hear my story and where I came from and where I'm at today, I owe that to this industry. I mean, it's basically almost taken everything, including my life, and it's given me everything. Yeah, that's that's led us to what what you're speaking of is this conversation that we had at Crawford Cookshop in Clayton. We'll get to the specifics of Cookshop because it's amazing. But you to, you revealed that in that late night conversation that you were like you're ready to get out. Well, in 2020, right? You were like, I, I why considered. Do I, need to do this? I considered um, just packing it in because in tw- we I mean 2020 was something we'd never seen before. Right. Right. Will the restaurant industry ever be the same? Well, I didn't even know that it was possible that someone could say, okay, you have to close your business. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that that was possible, that that could occur. Yeah. And it did. In one day, you're done. It was 
crazy. No support, no financial, nothing. You have no ability to earn a living. So I hope you saved some money. Right. Basically. We talked about you, uh, <laughs> or I should say Crawford and Son, as a an example of those that were probably feeling the worst hit of all because because takeout was fine. Barbecue was running. Yeah. Retail was going through the roof. I mean, sure. people were making revenue. Yeah. You know, the aforementioned Amazon was... Just they they hit into the the next gear and now there's you know Bezos is making penis shaped and rocket ships because of it, and so uh, but the artistry and the beauty and the service and all the all the things that you do like the visual representation of these amazing plates and the flavors and all that just they don't translate when you put them in a box no. in, in a styrofoam cup you know right. whatever it was and you were doing Crawford uh, cook uh, sorry uh, curbside yeah. And that was a way for people to get your food to take home. Yeah. But that was a huge shift down. Pivot. Yeah. Pivot. And mm-hmm. that wasn't necessarily sustainable. And I just, I, we had mentioned, it's like, man, I, fine dining is dying right now. It's almost dead. And and I think about the, you know, the the Scott Crawfords and the the Chef Greens and and even Ashley at Death and Taxes and all. It's like, what what's next for them? And so, yeah, what what were you experiencing at that point? Well, we were busy with curbside. I mean, extremely busy. I didn't even realize how busy. I knew that we were busy because I was working a station and busting my ass. We never stopped working. We sat down and said, "This okay, this is what we're going to do, and let's create a menu that will travel, and let's give this some thought and have this be a thoughtful thing, and let's deliver something that can actually comfort and nourish people in this time that's so crazy. And... uh so we did it. And, you know, at the end of the year, we generated a million dollars in revenue that year. And I didn't realize it until we did our taxes. Wow. We're a $2 million restaurant. Okay. We generated right. yeah. a million in curbside sales. That's pretty substantial because yeah. that's it was, no alcohol. Really, it was obscene right? yeah. how, how busy we were in the beginning. But what when it became when we discovered that it may not be sustainable is when people realized, oh, shit, this is going to be a lot longer than we thought. Mm. Right. And then you notice that people weren't coming to get curbside every night. Yeah, I think that all of our guests were being very supportive and saying, "Hey, let's let's all go out and support these restaurants." Right. And so we still had a following. People really still seem to enjoy the food. Um, but once you realize, as a as a customer, that this might be a year of this. You're not going to get curbside every night, right? Because it's just not financial. It's not sustainable for them. So then we started to see, you know, some of that um, decline, some of those sales decline. But we we were still okay, right? Bills were being paid. Things were, you know, we're not going to. Once we realized we're not going to lose everything that we've spent our entire lives building, then the thoughts of walking kind of went away. But there was a moment yeah. where and there was a conversation about it with my wife. Hey, let's walk. We have saved money. We've, we've done well, and we have been responsible with our investments. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. You know, well, I'm, I'm just, I don't have those type of fears uh, anymore in life that, that, you know, we can't do something different. Right. And that's all you get for today, folks. We're going to fade it out, bring up the music, and continue with the Chef Scott Crawford episode part two next Thursday. 
for listening to the NC F&B Podcast. And if you've stuck with us this long, review us on iTunes and remember, five stars are encouraged.